Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 30, and Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 23. Genesis 1, 26 through 30. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Genesis two fifteen through 23. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this is the word of the Lord. God, let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, uh, give us eyes to see, minds to understand, ears to hear, and a heart that loves the truth. Father, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We come to the last sermon uh, in our yearly church um, church vision series, and we come to the final distinctive of four distinctives. There's so much confusion uh, in our day when, when it comes to questions like, what is a man? What is a woman? And to quote one of our brilliant supreme judges in the land who said, I mean, I'm no biologist when it came to asking her what a woman was. What is a man? What is mankind? What's our purpose? What is gender? Is it something that's separable from simple biology? What's my role as a man in society? What's my role as a man in my home? What's my role as a woman in society? Or likewise, in the home and beyond. So much confusion, and unfortunately, I, I don't think, just from observation, that the church at large in our day, at least in the West, 
is in any better shape. In fact, I think so many churches have given in, in many ways, to the world's view of man and woman. Now, I'm not talking about churches with so-called women pastors or homosexual clergy, but talking about churches filled with families, even, that supposedly believe in God's ordering of the family, yet full of families where the men act like women and the women act like men. And in addition to that, oftentimes men thinking that the pinnacle of being a man is making sure the women stay happy. Happy wife, happy life. And women who think the pinnacle of being a woman is doing all the things a man does. Even in churches that might check off all the boxes of nine marks of a healthy church. We live in a moment of time where the, where the wrinkle in our view of mankind, I think, has reached new depths of crazy. So much confusion. What is a man? What is a woman? What's our purpose? A biblical anthropology. Our distinctive, number four, is this. A biblical anthropology and gender roles. A biblical anthropology and gender roles. Let me define what I mean. A biblical view of mankind, humankind, and a biblical view of gender and the roles of each gender. This is quite the hot topic in our day. My boots are not shaking because Jesus is Lord, but it's quite the hot topic. We're going to today, what I want to do is to work through portions of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But before we do that, I just want to give you like a little bit of encouragement when it comes to how to read your Bibles and how to read them well. So when it comes to reading our Bibles, and particularly as we get into this passage like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you need to, to really slow down. It's really easy to read this narrative like you would uh, Lord of the Rings, and even Lord of the Rings, you should slow down and pay attention to what's happening, but this is not a Dr. Seuss book, okay? Like, you don't need to just roll through this. Slow down. The details in a narrative, particularly like this, make a huge difference. Paying attention to the order of events, like what's not happening when other things are happening. That's really crucial when it comes to interpreting a passage like this. Second thought is that this passage is what we would say, what we would call paradigmatic. It's paradigmatic. Here's what we mean by that. It's, a, it's setting the paradigm. Now, I know I just used the word to define the word. It, that's what the dictionary always does anyways. But let me give you a different word to define the word that I'm using. It sets the pattern. So this, is, this passage is pattern setting. It's like, for example, it's like setting the first four colors in a particular order and then telling the kid to repeat the pattern. The Lord is setting the first 20 colors in a particular order, and he's telling us to repeat the pattern. That's what's happening here in Genesis. You can see that this is part of the intent of this passage when you read passages like, and you can read these later, Mark 12, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Timothy 2 and Ephesians 5. These are the New Testament authors showing us how to understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, particularly to understand them as a 
paradigm, or as paradigmatic, back to the word I started with. So it's paradigmatic. Next, we have to be careful that we don't let our physical observations around us be read into the text. Or a fancy word would be to eisegete the text, to impose our physical observations. Yet, the opposite is what we should do, and that is understand the text and then let it deny or support our physical observations. So let it sift our physical observations. So examples. Here's a couple examples, particularly pertinent to today. Women's bodies are clearly physically designed to raise children. And their proclivity even is to nurture and to be gentle. Men's bodies are clearly designed for more physical labor, conquering defeat. And even their personalities and, and natural proclivities tend to be more forceful and direct. Those are just observations that we can see around us that are generally true. You can't take those observations and read them into the passage and let that make our interpretation. However, what you should do, though, is let the text speak and then see that these things align amazingly with the text and then embrace them as good and true and beautiful. So with that said, Genesis 1 and 2. Let me give you a couple broad statements about Genesis 1 and 2. Have you ever read, and maybe even just a few moments ago, you, you heard read to you Genesis 1 and 2. Have you ever thought maybe there was a scratch in the record, like it's like on repeat, right? Like Genesis 1, and then we hear kind of the same thing in Genesis 2. No, the reality is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are talking about similar things, but they're talking about them in different ways. And it's crucial for us to understand the differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Let me give you a flyover very quickly. Genesis 1 is taking us through the orderly steps and the progressive steps of the days of God's work of creation. Genesis 2, though, lands us smack dab in the middle of day 6. Let me give you a couple more comments about the difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So Genesis 1, the orderly steps of, of all of creation. Genesis 1 is more concerned about God's relationship to creation broadly. Genesis 1, God's relationship to creation broadly. Genesis 2 is more concerned with the relationships within God's creation. So you might think of it as like vertical relationship, Genesis 1, horizontal relationship, Genesis 2. Next, the next juxtaposition or contrast is Genesis 1 shows us the similarity of God and man, namely man and woman made in the image of God. Genesis 2 shows us the dissimilarities between God and man, namely man and woman are made from dust. So we see the similarities and the dissimilarities. We see the relationship vertically and the relationships horizontally. How man is like God, how man is not like God. So first thing, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down is that both are made in the image of God. We call this the Imago Dei. And, and, and kind of the beginning of building a biblical anthropology. Both made in the image of God. 
the Imago Dei, a biblical anthropology. Man and woman are like God, but also unlike God. Now, this is said only of mankind when it comes to creation. This is not said of the birds of the sea. It's not said, uh, birds of the sea, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. So uh, maybe we should do a, a biblical uh, animal apology, whatever that would be. It's that word. But, uh, there you go. I'm glad I caught that one. <laughs> if you didn't catch, the, yeah, if you didn't catch that, yeah, anyways, moving on. It's said only of mankind, not said of any other part of creation, not the rocks, no other animals, and so on. The world suppresses this reality that man is made like God. On one hand, many view that we're just a clump of cells or just like any other animal. But then on the other hand, we act like we're gods and can transition to anything we want. The world suppresses this truth that God has made us in his image Unique to all other parts of creation. That we are like God, but we are also unlike God. Let's talk about mankind being like God in his image. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is objectively true. We have been made in a particular way for a particular purpose by a very particular God. We don't have the freedom to be whatever we want. We are under his creational design and lordship. Beautifully and wonderfully made in his image to act a certain way for a certain purpose. Namely, we are to know God and reflect God. That is our purpose, our chief purpose. We would spread his glory throughout the entire earth. As a side note, in the realm of transgenderism today, transgenderism is not most fundamentally just about Bruce Jenner thinking he can be Times Magazine Woman of the Year, as crazy as that is. It's most fundamentally a rejection of being made in the image of God and the belief that they can remake themselves into whatever they want to make themselves into. So it's, a, it's an embrace of, I can be God. That's, that's most fundamentally what's happening. That's what's at stake. That's what's the danger. But here he says, male and female, he created them. He didn't make them with options or a check other category. To be made in the image of God also means that we've been given a conscience and an ability to think and reason beyond simple instincts. Your dog acts the way he does based upon instinct. You and I have been given the ability to reason and to think. Now, mankind is... Not just like God, but according to Genesis 2, he is unlike God. Genesis 2 is concerned more, again, about the relationships within creation. But what is established in Genesis 2 is that man is unlike God. That he, and let me give you a list here, that he hasn't existed eternally. 
He had a moment in which he did not exist, and then he existed. God has eternally existed. That mankind's mind is finite. Even though he has the ability to reason, his mind is finite. His ability to reason, his ability to know things and knowledge and the vastness of his knowledge is finite. It's limited. There are things he can know and things that he cannot know. For example, he tells him not to eat of the tree. Don't eat of the tree. This is showing Adam's inability to handle that situation, that knowledge. Again, his reasoning is finite. He does not have the capability to discern good and evil, again, apart from God. He needs God to write laws. The man has no clue apart from God what it means even to be a man or a woman. God defines this for him. Ultimately, the, the, the main piece in Genesis 2 that says that he is unlike God is that he is made from creation. That he's in the image of God, but he was formed from creation. He is special, yet he's not special. He's set apart from creation, but he's not divine among creation. God is far above Adam is from below. So he's made in beautifully, amazingly, in the image of God. But he is unlike God as well. Mankind is like God. Mankind is unlike God. We also see in this passage, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 more broadly here, that mankind was created for a mission. He's created for a purpose. Purpose, not just to make money and be happy. He's created for a particular mission. Mankind wasn't created because God was lonely. People who teach that don't know how to read their Bibles. God was plenty satisfied within the Trinity. It also, mankind wasn't just created for him to grab a rake and a hoe and plant some corn and pick some pears, like Farmer Dan. His purpose is not simply that. I think we usually miss the significance of these passages because we miss the significance of covenant, of what it means to be in covenant relationship. So we just read through this, and Adam's supposed to take care of the animals, and he's supposed to plant a garden, and that's cool. I don't know what that means for me, but no, we miss the point because we miss the point of covenant. God wasn't just giving Adam some chores or a honey to-do list. God was saying this, to be my people, Adam, to be my people in my place and under my blessing, right? To stay in the garden under my rulership, in my blessing, my provision, you have to do these things. You have to keep this covenant. You see, mankind was to carry on all possible aspects of God's creational endeavor. All humanly possible aspects of God's creational endeavor. Let me give you a key emphasis here. When God says to fill the earth with his glory and to work and keep and expand the garden, there's a, there's a package deal. And there's two parts to this package. 
There's the keep the land and animals flourishing, and to keep that moving and keep that looking beautiful and working as it is to be. And then the second part is he's to spread God's image across the earth. It's a package deal. This is the mission by which God is going to fill the earth with his glory. His image bearers following his rulership, making the entire earth to flourish under God's rulership. Namely, knowing God, reflecting God. That's the beautiful picture here. Adam is not divine. Eve is, she's not divine. They cannot create out of nothing. But they are to exercise dominion over the earth, to have authority, to tell it when it's out of line, to keep it moving in the right direction, to continue its beauty and orderliness, to protect it, to keep it, to guard it, to expand the garden, and to bring God's order and his decrees to the rest of the earth. To subdue the earth means that there were still portions of the earth that were without the orderliness and beauty of the garden which Adam and Eve inhabited. They were to build it, to enjoy it, and to fill it with more image bearers. They were to bring every aspect of the Lord's rulership that they were humanly allowed to do to the rest of the earth. Everything we've seen thus far, that I've said thus far, as we've looked at Genesis 1 and 2, is largely true of both man and woman. All of mankind is to do this. Genesis 1 tells us that this responsibility is given to man and woman both. Now, Genesis 2, though, says that the way they're going to do it will look different. The way they're going to do it will look different. Their roles will look different. Now, before I jump into that, let me give a caveat. We in our culture today, and even in this church, cringe at the idea of generalizations. And we like things like androgyny. Androgyny meaning like there are no distinctions, no differences. We want everything to feel the same. Generalizations is something when you say this, this is generally the case or what's most frequently observed. Again, androgyny is the idea that everything is the same, that there are no distinctions. We dislike generalizations like Steeler fans, Steelers fans are mean or Browns fans are too optimistic. Right? <laughs> Or men are made for physical toughness. Women are made for gentleness and childbearing. Now listen, that doesn't mean that all Steelers fans are mean or that all Browns fans are crazy. But generally this seems true, all right? Okay, you get my point. We love androgyny meaning no distinctions. Don't tell me that men are stronger than women. Men and women can be generally the same strength. Did you know that ladies are six times more likely to incur an ACL injury than men are in contact sports? Listen, 
we, we don't like, our culture does not like. That's why this fight for, for everything being the same. Do you, you know, just a practical thought here. You know why our world wants every person to, to generally be the same? It's easier to control them. It's easier for the government, it's easier for evil to control people when everyone is the same, when they can all fit nicely into one box. Listen, generalizations and distinctions are not bad. It's not bad to say two and three-year-olds are generally emotional wrecks. That's generally true. If you've had a child, you know what I mean. In the immediate example, in the immediate context, men are meant for conquering, women are meant for life-giving. Listen, that does not mean that women never conquer. That does not mean that men never give life, with the exception of birthing a child. And remember, there are both, they are both on the mission together to spread God's glory and his rulership across the entire earth. Genesis 2 shows us that the way that's going to look for each of them will be different. Different emphasis, a different focus, or another way of saying a different orientation as they go. You see, they are both made for different roles. Both made for different roles. They're both equal. Both made for dominion, subduing the earth. Genesis 1 makes the equality between man and woman painfully clear. Both are in the image of God, both made of flesh and bone, both formed by God, both inhabited the garden, both enjoy God's provision, both are bound by the same divine commands. Yet the emphasis is different. Their emphasis is going to be different as they carry out God's commands. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to state those differences, and then I'm going to tell you how I got there from the text. Before I do that, let me give a caveat, particularly for those who are not yet married. Genesis 1 and 2 shows us, and the rest of the scriptures indeed uh, affirm this, that the norm is going to be marriage. Now that doesn't, listen to me, that does not mean that singleness is inherently sinful. That doesn't, that's not what I'm saying. But the norm, the vast majority of people are going to be married. That's the picture. They're to be fruitful and multiply. You can't be fruitful and multiply apart from marriage. So it means generally that's going to be the, the course for most of mankind. However, the gender roles that we talk about today can still be worked out even in your singleness to some measure. So please be encouraged with that. Please walk it out and figure out how do I walk this out as a single man or as a single woman. Now back to the bigger picture. I want you to think of it this way. They're both on a ship bringing dominion around the world. Image shining on behalf of God. But on that ship and at each port and each stop, they have different God-ordained roles. The ship represents the dominion of the earth 
and the exercise of that. But the roles on there are going to look different. Let me state those kind of plainly and succinctly. Men, their orientation will be toward the earth, exercising dominion through rulership or lordship. They'll be toward the earth. Let me give you some other words or descriptors. Guarding, keeping, protecting, ordering. Guarding, keeping, protecting, ordering. Now, a woman's primary orientation, again, the norm is going to be marriage. The, ori- the orientation for the woman will be primarily toward the man. Exercising dominion through helping and life-giving. Orientation for her toward the man. Exercising dominion through helping and life-giving. Let me give you some more descriptors. Again, life Human community, hospitality, beauty, life, human community, hospitality, and beauty. There are many more descriptors for each one of those we could give. Remember, we're speaking in generalizations. It's not saying that a, that a man is, never should be about hospitality. There's sh- certainly passages in the New Testament that tell us men should exercise hospitality. It's not that women are never going to be protecting or ordering. It's not that women ever don't do anything towards the earth. Or that men are just throw the household to the side. That's not the point. But their orientation, the way they're moving the mission forward of God, the mission of God forward, is they're generally oriented towards the earth for men and generally oriented towards the man, particularly her husband, the woman. That's why you get to the New Testament when Paul says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. It's not to all men, but to her husband. All right, so let's walk through the passage. I'm just going to make a few comments on some verses and then some observations. And we're going to do that for Genesis uh, 2 here, for man and then for woman. So first of all, men, orientation towards the earth, exercising dominion through rulership, lordship, conquering, so on and so forth. Now, before I do that, let me note this. We're just talking about the man at this point. And before I talk about the man, I have a question. Why is it that anytime we start talking about the man and his role, the first question from many men is, quote, but what about the women? Could it be, I have a couple potentials. Could it be because the men who ask that question don't want to be called out for their failure in their actual responsibilities? Like a magician saying, you know, hey, look at this hand. Don't pay attention to the hand that's going, you know, behind my back. Just let's focus on the woman. Let's not pay attention to the ways I'm failing. Now, that makes you look chivalrous 
and honorable when you're actually just a coward and a wimp? Second could be, could it be that you've erected a modern-day temple of Aphrodite where you can't think of anything better to do than to earn your salvation through the keeping of women happy? Now again, it makes us look like a knight in shining armor when we're actually just like Adam cowering over in the corner, shrugging his responsibilities. Instead, real godly men, the men who truly love and care about the women in their life, will make sure their own role is solidified before they start worrying about anyone else's role. So now we got that out. Let's walk through the passage. Man is created first. It says he is the firstborn. Man is the firstborn. 2.7 says that he's made from the dust. 2.8 and 15. Again, this is just Adam at this point. We're just talking about the man. Verse 8 and 15 show us that God put him in the garden. You know what I should do? This. If you don't have your Bibles open, open them up and look right at these verses with me. Again, because it's crucial here that you see what's happening, what's not happening, and when things happen in chronological order, or what the chronological order is. So Eve, in chapter 2, has not been created yet. And then verse 7 says that he's made from the dust. Look at verse 8 and verse 15. It says that God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. At this point, man is the center, uh, at the center of the stage, and he will remain at the center of the stage. Now in 2.15, again, before Eve is in the picture, Adam is called to work the garden and care for the garden. Verse 16, the covenant is given to Adam. The covenant. Don't miss that. Yes, Eve is bound by this, but bound by this because Adam is the covenant head. He's the federal head. That's why Paul says, I don't want to get on a tangent here and I'll make the sermon two hours long, but, but that's why Paul says uh, that through sin, one, through one man, sin entered the world, and through one man, righteousness. It's because Adam is the federal head, the covenant's given to Adam. That's good news for us. You want to know why that's good news for us? Because then Jesus becomes our new federal head of the new human race, whereby we get his righteousness. So that's, that's beautiful. We want that. We want Adam to be here, the covenant head. We want that. It's hap- but it, whether we like it or not, it's happening. Verse 16, it's given to him, don't eat and die. Don't eat and live. It's pretty simple. Trust me. God says, and live, don't trust me, and die. Now, when they fall, God comes to Adam, right? Adam, what have you done? He doesn't come to Eve. Adam is held accountable for leading because he's the covenant head. He comes to Adam for a failure to exercise and image God's rulership and lordship in the garden with his wife. Then you get to verse 18, and it says that it's, that Adam, that it's not fit, it is not good, 
that the man should be alone, I will make a helper, make him a helper fit for him. That's a key phrase. But notice what happens next. I think in most of our minds, what happens next is, okay, now here comes Eve. What happens next? Look at the passage. Adam names the animals. Look at it. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast. And so, well, hang on a second. You just said he, he needs a helper. Well, then now God brings the animals for Adam to name. What's the picture? Again, it's Adam exercising dominion and lordship with the rest of creation. He's, listen, the idea of naming someone is an act of authority and of keeping and of rulership. You're mine. I, I get, I get, I'm leading you. And here's your name. It's an act of dominion, an act of ordering and separating, of conquering, if you will, the animals. To name something, again, is to exercise rulership or lordship. In addition to that, it's, it's almost like God is parading the animals in front of Adam, displaying this lordship and this conquering, this rulership, but also as if to prove the point. Adam, there is no one fit to be your helper on this earth. Nothing else. Then we get to verse 21. And God puts Adam to sleep, and here he creates woman. Some observations. Again, Adam is the firstborn. You understand the firstborn in earlier cultures, they didn't just get the inheritance. They also get the leadership and authority responsibility of the family. Again, it's another hint, another proclamation of, the, of his rulership, his leadership, his covenant headship. Next to that point is, again, Adam is the covenant head. He's the one ultimately responsible for mankind's keeping the covenant. Again, that's why God comes to Adam first. Next, Adam is to work and keep, to guard and protect. That's what those words are talking about, to work it, to guard it, to protect it. Again, now hear me, listen, this does not mean that he is to simply pick up garden tools and make sure that the plants have proper moisture. That's a part of it. His role, though, is to make sure the whole earth walks in covenant with God. That's his responsibility, that the animals stay rightly ordered, that the plants produce fruit in season, and that no one eats from the forbidden fruit and continues to trust the Lord of the garden. He's to exercise rulership with a lowercase l. Again, this is all part, all apart, rather, of the creation of woman at this point. Again, according to Genesis 1, she's going to have a role in that. But according to Genesis 2, this is all at this point apart from Eve. 
Adam, what we see here is Adam is oriented. He's created with an orientation toward the earth, toward creation, toward expanding the garden, towards subduing the next portion, towards fighting back the, the thorns and the thistles, if you will. His emphasis is on the ground and the animals and keeping everything just as God wants it. His orientation is away from the household, not in neglect of the household, but the emphasis is beyond. Again, just as a reminder, in Genesis 3, Adam fails. What does he fail at? He should have protected Eve and guarded the garden. How? What should he have done at that moment? He should have conquered the serpent. He should have said, no. And if you keep it, I'm going to step on your head. He didn't just fail at, hey, wife, we shouldn't eat that. We shouldn't eat that fruit. He failed at being the covenant head that he was supposed to be. God comes to Adam first. Now, women, the woman in Genesis, her orientation toward the man, exercising dominion through life-giving. I'm going to walk through the passage a little more briefly here. Woman is created second, and she is created from Adam. So think about this. Adam is created from the dust, then the woman is created from the man. That's important. Verse 18, it says that it's not good or not fitting that man should be alone. Again, he says, I will make him a helper. It's not good that man should be alone. Now, let me help you here. This, it's, Adam, it's not that Adam was lonely. This isn't Adam has this emotional loneliness. Again, listen, Adam was in the garden walking with God. If, and if it was about that, God would have said, I'll make for him an emotional lover to keep him happy. That's not what it says. But he, here's the deal. He is alone in the mission. He is by himself in the mission. It's not good. He will not be able to complete the mission if there's just Adam. He needs help in exercising dominion, in carrying out the mission. Again, in verse 23 and from the context, she is like Adam, but she is unlike Adam. She's not exactly like Adam. Adam wasn't given uh, a copycat uh, an identical twin. He was given someone that's like him, but unlike him. Someone that is fit to be a helper in the mission of dominion. Now, some observations. She is made, again, as a helper fit for Adam. She's not made as a helper fit for the animals and not even a helper fit directly for God. She is made as a helper fit for Adam. Now, certainly, she has, her glory is ultimately towards God, 
But her means, the way she does that is as she helps Adam. She was created from Adam for Adam. Again, Adam is created from creation, oriented toward creation. Eve is created from Adam, oriented, therefore, toward Adam. Again, she's like Adam, but different. And not just in physical characteristics, as we'll see, I hope you see from this as we go, but also in her propensities and her nature and her emphases. Now, now, real quick, we need to think, in, in our culture today, we tend to think of helper as someone of lesser value, of someone of lesser dignity. Oh, you're just the help. You're just the hired help, or you're just the grunt. You just go do whatever anyone else says. Listen, if that's the case, do you know how many times the Scriptures refer to the Lord as our helper? That God, our Father, is our helper? To the Israelites, He is their helper? Or that the Lord's going to send the Spirit to be our helper? Does that mean that he's of less dignity and less worth than you and I because he's helping us? No, that's absurd. This is another example of our culture's absurdities when it comes to these, these descriptions and distinctions. But she's to be Adam's helper. It's not a term of value or worth, but a term of relationship. How they to relate to each other. Adam is not made to be her helper. She is made to be Adam's helper. She is responsible to accept Adam's leadership and help him in the mission. She's to help him move it forward. G.K. Chesterton said this, feminism is like a muddled idea that women are free when they serve their employers, but slaves when they help their husbands. So her orientation is not toward creation directly, but toward Adam. Yes, she's likely going to pick up a rake. Yes, she's likely going to cut back some weeds. Yes, she's going to remind her offspring not to eat of that tree. Yes, she's going to conquer them when they're disobedient. Yes, but her focus, her drive is not directly at the creation and expanding the garden to the whole earth, but at her husband. And through her husband, then how now do we move forward on the mission of God? Her orientation is different. Now, how, again, I want to help see this more directly from the text. How is she to help Adam? How is she to help him? This is key to her emphasis in her role of dominion. What does the text say in verse 18? I will make a helper fit for him. And I think what we do is at that point, we, we just depart from the text and we say, okay, cool. That can look however I want that to look. I'm just going to be helping Adam exercise dominion. I can go do whatever I want. If you don't understand the context, you can say things like, it's cool as long as Eve thinks she's doing something good as she's helping Adam. But what's the context? Look at the first part of verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. How is she to help Adam? It's that first part. It's to fix the problem of aloneness. 
That's her primary way she's going to help him. Adam is to order the world and keep it in covenant with God. Flourishing, subdued. Eve is to fix Adam's aloneness as he accomplishes that task. She is oriented toward him. She is to look to him for how she is to help in the task of dominion. Now step back for a second. I just want you to see the beautiful picture here. With Eve's creation, she's come to help Adam. And by helping Adam, the primary way she's going to fix the aloneness towards the mission, her orientation towards him. With Eve's creation comes the creation of human community. Of human community between her and Adam. That's huge. How else are they going to be fruitful and multiply? How else are they going to have more hands to fill the earth in such a way that they push back the garden, expand the garden, and spread the image of God? She's got a crucial role. Adam cannot complete this task without Eve. And God made Adam that way. With Eve's creation comes the creation of human community. With Eve's creation brings the ability to create more human community. That wasn't given to Adam. The task to be fruitful and multiply was. But the task to birth children, to bring forth human life, is given to Eve. That's why in chapter 3, verse 20, she's called what? The mother of all living. That's amazing. The procreation emphasis, in many ways, is given to her and not to Adam. The ability is given to her. Listen, she is to help subdue the earth, bring order to the chaos, to make things beautiful, but her emphasis is, is by bringing new image bearers into the world and by creating human godly community as they complete the mission. That's amazing. That's what our world is trying to kill right now. That's why Paul says, listen, just it's a tad in the New Testament, Titus 2, older women to the younger women, he says this, the older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Do you see it? Paul understands Genesis. Paul is affirming what I just said. He is saying that, that this is what's good. Titus, you're going to go instruct the older women to do this in your church. That women should be loving their husbands, loving their children. They should be self-controlled and pure, working on the household. They should be kind and submissive to their own husbands. Again, where does Paul get this from? Because he understands Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
He understands the paradigm. He understands the orientation. Because what's the picture of the orientation of the women here in Titus 2? It's towards the home. It's towards the community of the home. Even explicitly saying so, working at home. It doesn't mean that women can't have jobs outside the home. Don't read that into what I'm saying. But it means their orientation, their general emphasis looks this way. Now let me give you two, lastly here, two kind of points of further application. Two points of further application. I've already walked through how they're similar how they're alike, their orientations, how they're similar, how they're not alike, how they're dissimilar. Let me give you a couple points of further application. One is this. The elders at Christ the Lord affirm what we would call Christ-like father rule. Christ-like father rule. Sometimes referred to as biblical patriarchy. I know that term patriarchy is scary today. Everyone envisions the overbearing father or grandfather where all the kids walk around scared of life itself. Maybe they even buy a compound and all the kids live there, drink Kool-Aid, and sacrifice animals to the supposed patriarchy. You know, the the weird homeschool family with seven kids, right? That one? Kind of like mine, but with two more. The ones that buy farms and make their daughters wear dresses all the time. And anyways, you get the point. <clears throat> Here's what we mean by this. In the household, I'm just walking out some implications of, of Genesis here. In the household, the husband is to rule the house. He's the head of the household. Go read Ephesians 5. It does not say that he should be the head. It says that he is the head. It's an inescapable reality. His presence or lack thereof, is the dominant force. That's what it means to be the head. But here's the deal, also according to Ephesians 5, but according to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that headship must be Christ-like. That's the same thing being said to Adam. We just don't have the name Christ yet. Why? Because he is to follow and submit and keep the covenant of God. It's no different when Paul gets to Ephesians. His headship should be Christ-like. His father rule must be Christ-like. It must be sacrificial, loving his wife and subsequently his kids in a way that reflects Christ's sacrificial love for the church. But let's be careful. That does not mean his leadership is to keep everyone happy. But instead, it's to help everyone under his rulership follow Jesus as he follows Jesus. To use garden language here, he is to tend to the garden of his household. If weeds pop up, if animals change names, or someone eats from the tree that they shouldn't, it's his responsibility to do something about it. He's to lead in the mission of God. It's really helpful. Husbands have an example to follow. 
They follow Christ and how he leads the church. Christ exemplifies his father's perfect rule beautifully to his bride, perfectly, such that she will be transformed for all of eternity. Husbands exemplify the same. Wives have an example to follow. They follow the example of the church that is to follow Christ. How does Christ submit to the church? Or Christ, sorry, how does the church submit to Christ? How does the church supposed to follow Christ? If you look at those examples, that'll help a wife understand what does it look like? These wives get the marvelous treasure of helping their husbands. This is also reflected in the reality of the church being led by godly men, exercising father rule in the church. This is why we only, one of the reasons why we only ordain men to be pastors. They're they're exemplifying God's father rule that we see in Christ, and they exemplify that to the church. So the elders of of Christ the Lord affirm Christ-like father rule. Second, the elders affirm this idea of what we call like a life on mission. And I I want to expand that for you here very briefly. God's mission for for the earth, for mankind as it relates to the earth. Listen, we've, in our day, we've lost sight. We've, we've kind of relegated the human purpose to just Matthew 28. As important as Matthew 28 is, and the Great Commission, and to go make disciples of all the nations, that doesn't preclude any of the mission that's given before that. It's a whole package. It's, it's both an exercise dominion over the earth, the rulership of God over the earth, every aspect of the earth. And now we know that that includes obedience to all that Christ has commanded, which is what? It, it's, that's what Adam was supposed to have done. It's obedience to all that God has commanded, and he was supposed to do that. Jesus does it. So this idea of on life on mission. Listen, the husband, certainly, again, if we're thinking the norm is generally marriage for most people, The husband must be self-governed under Christ's rulership, keeping the covenant himself. Now, listen, I I, I know we fail at that, right? That's that's the importance of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, where then we live out our salvation, not living to earn our salvation. But nevertheless, husband must be self-governed under the rulership of Christ then he must lead each individual in his household to be rightly ordered under Christ. Listen, this is true even of you singles. You have your own household right now. It's just you. But you have to be self-governed under the rulership of Christ. Then the household, if that happens, if the, if the husband is leading and the household is following and they are governed under the lordship of Christ as a household, that is a magnificently potent and powerful mechanism in our world for bringing the dominion and rulership of Jesus Christ. This was Adam's mission. But then the church, so moving beyond the self, the household, now to the church. Listen, the church is made up of households. 
It is a household of households. And the more potent the households are within the household of God, the more potent the church will be at exercising and bringing the lordship of Jesus Christ. Then the church together, the households of God together, as the household of God, move on mission together to bring Christ's lordship to the community and ultimately to the world. Listen, that again was Adam's mission and Eve was to help him to take God's rulership to the ends of the earth. It began with Adam. Protect the garden. Name the animals. Make sure no one eats from this tree. All that God has commanded, spread that through the earth. Then us men are to do the same We're to work for our employers in a way that exercises dominion God's way. That means for some of us, we should build businesses God's way that love our neighbor God's way. That we should rightly order our household and make it potent with the glory of God. This means that you and your bride are to do this together with the right emphases. It means that covenant that Adam was supposed to keep and break, or that he yet broke, you know, that, that covenant? Yes, that covenant, Jesus ultimately kept it. He fulfilled it. And now Jesus says, teach the world, all nations, to obey all that I've commanded. Teach them, here's what he's saying, to put it in more Genesis terms, to place themselves under the lordship of God. Teach them to do that. And so I end with this question, how? How do we do that? How do we do this? The first thing we have to recognize is that it requires new birth. God giving us eyes to see his glory especially through the glorious picture of the gospel. A heart that is still dead and cold towards God will not love God's ways. And if he does not love God's ways, then he cannot lead in God's ways. And he, she cannot follow in God's ways. We need, desperately need, the Lord to breathe life into our dead hearts. Once he's done that, then we have all the grace and all the power necessary to accomplish it. We need Jesus' righteousness to lead. We need Jesus' righteousness to follow. We need his death so that we see what it looks like to die. We need his death because we need his payment for our sins. We need his resurrection because we need to see what it looks like to have power over sin and death. This, this, uh, outside the garden, it was still, uh, it, it had form, but it was not yet ordered the way God intended for it to be ordered. When you and I walk outside some of our gardens, we see that the world is a mess. And you don't have to look far. We need the resurrection because we need to be reminded that there is life. 
And it's only life, and it only comes through Christ. The answer to the households that are a mess around you, the answers to your disordered family is not around us. The answers are through Christ and Christ alone. And then having been set free from our sin and sealed for eternal life through Christ, we now enjoy living out all that He has commanded. In the weeks before, we've talked about all these good works that He's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? Ephesians 2, right? We've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then it says, um, but God has created these works and prepared them that we should walk in them. Listen, this that we just talked about, this what a biblical anthropology looks like, what gender roles look like according to the scriptures, those are good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Walk in them. Walk in them. Go to your scriptures. Go pray. Go get help. Go ask for help. You have the power of God and the grace that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ to walk in those good works. Go walk in them. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the grace to see and behold the goodness of your character and your truth, your gospel, and the instructions that you've given to us. Father, I pray that we would not see these things as burdens unless, unless we want to do anything but what you've called us to do. Then let us realize that what we perceive as a burden is because of our distaste for the things of God. And then lead us to repentance. And then through that repentance, may we see that these things that you've laid out for us, these works you've prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, are, are a grace to us and are good for us. And they will ultimately spread your image and your glory across the entire earth. Give us, give us the power to walk faithfully. Give us the grace to see when we err. Father, give us the mercy when we walk in repentance and faith. Father, I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.